0: Good morning once again. Um, now we're going to get to our sermon. It's been a busy Sabbath so far, hasn't it? But it's been good. I must admit, I was feeling a bit nervous this morning. I don't know why. Have you ever had that where you're nervous but you don't know why? Um, I was feeling quite, yeah, nervous um, but also excited. Maybe I was excited um, and it, and I was thinking about that as I was sitting there. And I think there are situations where we where we should feel a bit nervous and... and uh, you know, I, I always think that what, before I go up to preach, there should be a sense of nervousness to a degree because it's a great privilege to stand in front of God's people and bringing their God's word. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit nervous, but I'm quite excited as well. And I think mainly because the sermon I'm going to preach about today is something that I was pretty convicted on this week, and it is something that we really speak about. And I, as I was preparing this week yesterday or the day before yesterday, I had the privilege to cycle um, a bit in nature again. I haven't done that for quite a few months. Um, and so I went out a little bit and just went, uh, you know, we have such beautiful paths um, and, and roads. I went uh, over Tomowin and came down there and just Dalgigen Road and all around there. And I was just so kind of stunned at the natural beauty that we have here. Um, and, and we should be very appreciative for the place where we live and kind of capitalize on that. And especially this last week where we had such good weather, um, I was reminded of the topic that we're going to speak today. So we're in our Grateful Living series, and we're going to speak today about our territory. So this is sometimes called theology or um, creation care. And I think this topic is a topic that we speak about the least. If I think about these eight domains of time and talents and testimony and treasure and temple, territory, tribe, truth, I think this is the one that I have heard the least amount spoken about. And the, probably the least that we give a lot of attention to. And I think that as Adventists, this is, this is just messed up. I think we have, uh, of all the denominations in the world, we should be at the forefront of this. And um, I think at the end of today, you would agree with me. So we're going to speak about territory. And um, as we were going through the Grateful Living series, there's a few assumptions that we've made from the beginning. Number one is that God is the owner of everything. So if you think about all of those domains, at the end of the day, you're not the owner of any of those things. You are merely a manager of those things. God is the ultimate owner. And number two, being managers of God's economy is a response to gospel grace. We don't do something in order to earn God's salvation, in order to earn God's goodness. We come and say, thank you, Jesus, for everything that you've done. Thank you for everything that you've given me. Now let me manage it well. And so that's what we're going to speak about today today. Um, so the key words of this whole series of Grateful Living is entrusted and privilege. It is a privilege that we have that God has entrusted these domains to us to manage well. And so today we're going to talk about territory and creation care. And the key, uh, or one of the questions that I want to know or ask about is why is this not spoken about? Why don't we speak more about this? But before we get into that, let's pray together. Gracious Father, thank you so much that we can be a Lord as we open your Scripture now, Lord, as we delve into your Word. I pray, Lord, that you will give us new eyes to see, new ears to hear, so that we can hear your spirit speaking to our hearts and to our minds. This topic, Lord, is a topic that we all have heard about. We have probably have some opinions about this, but I pray, Lord, that our opinions will be left at the door and that we will look at Scripture, and that your Scripture would speak to us, that your Holy Spirit would would illuminate our minds, Lord, and may we hear from your throne. May we walk out here today knowing what you have called us to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So the question is, why is this not spoken about? I think there's various reasons, but I think that there's three that I want to speak about. And this is the first one. I don't believe in global warning. How many of you have ever seen this picture? It's a picture a few years ago. It's a, it's a, a, a um, graffiti piece from Banksy. Banksy is a graffiti artist in London, and he did this in Camden, and um, he did this right under the water level there, so it seems as if the water level is rising. Now this is not just an art piece. This is a political statement. And I think that's one of the reasons why we don't speak about ecotheology or about caring for, because there's so much politics around this. And somehow we think that if I'm in this political domain, I cannot speak about something that the other political domain is speaking about. If we think about being green or looking after the environment, what is the pictures that come into your mind? What is the political affiliation that come into your mind? Is it something that you're like, yeah, I can go with this? Or you're like, whoa, 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 I don't want to get involved in these things. Generally, conservative Christianity Is against the political parties. Now, I don't want to get into politics and tell you where you should, but at the end of the day, we should know as Christians, our first priority should be to what God has called us. We should have no political affiliations with anything that is against God's kingdom. And so when we talk about this today, this is not a political statement or anything like that. This is something that comes from scripture. And as Christians, just because certain political parties or if a topic has been politicized doesn't mean that we shouldn't have a voice on it as well. Our voice, however, should not be biased to any political party or any specific philosophy or ideology, but we should say, what does Scripture say about this? The second reason is that I think in the West specifically we're very sheltered from this problem. We're sheltered from how bad the problem actually is. Now there's many things that I can cite um, and there's tons of documentaries and tons of resources that you can go into. I just want to speak about one. Um, this is called the Western Garbage Patch and the Eastern Garbage Patch in the Pacific um, Ocean. Now, there's five of these gyres in the world, and so essentially there's five of them all over the world, the Atlantic Ocean, Arctic, like all over the place, right? This is what it looks like in the ocean, floating. Now, there is this idea that it is an island floating in, 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 in the ocean. That's not true. When they speak about this vortex or this garbage patch, they're not talking about an island that's floating away. If you think about this, this is, this is essentially um, how it would be, is that it's 1.6 million kilometers square, square kilometers. And a lot of the debris and plastic and all of the stuff that's there is so small that you don't even see it. And so if you look at this picture over here, There are dense parts, so there are parts that look like that. That's the red part, but then it stretches quite far to some places where you don't even see it, but the plankton and all the other small microorganisms in the ocean, they are still affected by it, right? So 1.6 million square kilometers, 1.8 trillion pieces of plastic in our ocean, 80,000 tons of garbage, 99% of that is plastic. That means 99% of that stuff is what humans have put out there. That's what we have done as a human race, right? 8% of those are microplastics, 13% are mesoplastics, 26% macroplastics, and 53 megaplastics, meaning that it goes from the most smallest to massive big things, right? Now, I want to show you two photos here that is pretty sensitive. So if you're a sensitive individual, or if there's children, I'm going to ask you to you know, cover their eyes or something like this. But I, I thought of not putting this in, but I thought that th- this would be good because when I was researching and reading of these things, I was reading all of these stats. I was reading all of them and I was like, yeah, 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 okay, cool. But when I see these pictures, then I'm like, okay, this is real. Right, this is the first one. This is Aurora. She was three-year-old um, with, her, with her sister, was found in the Arctic Ocean. That's how she was found. Man, my heart just breaks. This is another one. That's what we have done. The third reason why I think that we don't speak about this is because we have a faulty theology. We think that, oh, you know, we're heading towards the destruction of the world. You know, everything is going anyway, you know, to the slums, and God is going to come and restore everything. So that absolves us from any responsibility. That absolves us from doing what we need to do. You know, everything's just going down the tube anyway. But that is not true what the Bible is saying. Yes, we know that the world is hurtling towards this destruction. We know that Jesus is gonna come again. We know that he's gonna make everything new. But God is calling all of us to a certain responsibility as his managers. And that's what we're gonna get in today. So I want you to put your um, political affiliations and, and, and ideologies at one side. I want you to say, but I, I'm not affected here in, in Kingsliff. I'm not affected here in, in New South Wales or Queensland. And put that aside. I want you to put your faulty theology to one side and say, let's listen to what the Bible is saying about about this topic because this is extremely important now like I say when I was reading this weekend and researching I realized that this is but the tip of the iceberg that I will share with you today the Bible is so replete with this idea of caring for creation it comes up everywhere so let's talk about that does the Bible speak about environmental concerns and obviously yes and what does it say and that's what we'll look at today. And so today I'm just going to look at God's blueprint. We don't have a lot of time to going through all the stuff. We just have one sermon that we're going to cover this. But if you want to know more, I can you can come and speak to me. There's so many really good books at the moment that that speak about this. There's, this is a, a, a thing that is growing especially in theology as well. Um, but we're just going to look at God's blueprint in Genesis. And so we're going to look at Genesis 1 and 2 and the covenantal ideal, which means that this is not the ideal that God had there one day and then one day we'll have one ag- once again. No, no, no. In the process from the already to the not yet, in the process from what was to what will be, God is still doing something within us and wants to, through this process, say, still care for my creation. And so we'll speak about this covenantal ideal, and the idea specifically is this idea of covenantal ideal. If you go through the big story of Scripture, the grand narrative from creation to consummation, right through, whether it is Christ, crisis, covenant, Christ, church, coming, all of these things, throughout all of them, there is a covenant that God made that started within Himself as the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, covenanted with each other. They have a covenant that they then share and spread over to humanity that started with Adam started in Genesis 1 and 2 where God makes a covenant with humanity. says, I will be the creator and you will be my co-creators. I will be God and you will be my people. And through you, I will give dominion. Through you, I will rule. God makes that covenant and we've messed that up as human beings. And God has been faithful to that covenant right through to the end. To the point that God is so faithful to this covenant that he himself makes himself responsible for this covenant. When he made the covenant to Abraham... He put the the two um, animals there, which is a sign of the covenant. He says to to Abraham, sacrifice these animals, cut them in half. And then what generally would have happened with the covenant is that the two parties would walk through it. And then they would say, made this happen to me if I break this covenant. God is the one that said, he's the only one that walked through and said, I will be ultimately responsible. God is so serious about this that it led to him going to the cross and dying for this. This ideal of covenant is where God is going towards. It's the, the framework of all of Scripture. It is the skeleton that everything hangs upon. We understand everything from this idea of a covenant. And so let's set the theological scene, get the, the parameters of Genesis 1 and 2, right? So Genesis chapter 1 and 2 comes from two different perspectives. If you read it, you sometimes can get a bit confused about what is really going on here, right? And so we're not going to go into depth of Genesis 1 and 2, just give a kind of a basic overlay, overview. If you go to Genesis 1, it says um, that God created the heavens and the earth, and you read through it, you'll get this kind of flavor that there's this repetition that happens, day one and day two and day three and day four and day five and day six. They're very similar in some ways. There's an outline. God God said, let there be light, and God saw, and God evaluated, and and we, the first day and the second day, there's this kind of rhythm to the, the first six days. What's interesting in Genesis chapter 1 is that God comes, and he and the narrative comes, and he says, and God saw, and God said, and God saw, and God said, and God saw, and God said. The word there is Elohim. And then we see a shift in Genesis chapter 2 where it's not God anymore, but the Lord God. The word Lord there is the word Yahweh. It's the idea of the Messiah coming close by. Interestingly enough, the word Yahweh, if you go to the original core word where he speaks to Moses and says, I am who I am, that's what the word Yahweh means. If you take out the vowels, which is not there in the original Hebrew, the word Yahweh is your breathing pattern. Yahweh. So every time that you breathe, you have the word of God on your lips. And so we are so intimately connected to this creation story of God coming into us, and so we see this close personal aspect that this God that creates is not just far off, even though He is powerful and, and, and sovereign, He is also a God that is intimately close to us as humans. We see that, that he moves in Genesis 1 from chaos to cosmos. He moves from the place where there is just darkness and void. The Hebrew word tohu vavahu. There's just chaos there. But then he moves through the process, and at the end, he rests within his own creation, comes and not only rests from his work, but rests in his work. In Genesis chapter 2, we see him moving not only from chaos to cosmos, we see him moving from complete incompleteness to completeness. He starts off in Genesis 2, and he says that the garden isn't a great place to live, and there's two reasons, because there's no water and because there's no man. And then he creates water and all these rivers, and then he creates man, and then he says to the man, name all the animals, and the man names all the animals, and he says, but there's two donkeys, and there's two giraffes, and there's two hippopotamuses, but there's only one of me. And then God puts him to sleep, because God had said already, it is not good for man to be alone, and then God creates somebody from his ribs. And then he says, alas, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, so close, so intimate to me. So we see the story move from incompleteness to completeness. So this story of Genesis 1 and 2 should be read from above and from below, giving us a comprehensive picture of the whole creation account, where Adam and Eve steps into creation as co-creators, as people that are given dominion in the image of God, but they are not absent or it's taken away from God. God is in their midst with them. He didn't just create this from above and left them as a deistic God. No, 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 he comes close to them and wants to be with them in this process. Now, there's two key texts that we'll speak about today, Genesis 1 verse 26 to 28 and Genesis 2 verse 15, just those two. So Genesis 1 verse 26 to 28, and there's two things I want to speak about here, image and dominion, image and dominion. It says, then God said, let us make a man in our image after our likeness. God is coming and he speaks and he says, let us make man in our image. That word image, salem, is the idea of creating something that is your expressed image. Lawrence Turner, Adventist, Old Testament scholar, writes this. He says, being in the image of God refers not only to what we are, but also to what we do. I want you to get that. When we are created in the image of God, God is not just concerned about who you are, but also how you act. Christianity has always been a religion, not just merely assenting to some beliefs, holding to some ideological idea. No, 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 Christianity is how you act, how you live your life. We represent God on earth, or God, God on earth. Let the weightiness of that idea just sink into you, that you are a letter, as Paul says, to this world and not just to the human beings but to the animals and to the about who God is we represent God on earth you represent God on earth you're an image ancient kings would erect images of themselves in parts of their empire which they were not present such images represented the authority of the king. So they would, rep- they would replicate images of themselves and put them all over. So when you walk into their domain, you'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is King Nebuchadnezzar's place. Oh, yeah, yeah, this is, this. you would know whose kingdom and whose domain you're in. That's why God in the Ten Commandments says that you shall have no graven images. Why? Because he's saying if you make a graven image, you are actually dissing yourself. You're making a graven image of a piece of wood. Man, you're created already in the image. You are an image of the king. When you're walking around in this world, you are showing that this is God's domain. He is the king. He continues, he says, in Genesis, human beings are God's representatives, so they must exercise dominion as God would. They have a responsibility to represent God, not merely to act in whichever way they wish. We do that these days. We either blame the church, well, the church should do this. Or the pastor should do this. Or the organization should do this. No, no, no. At the end of the day, the Bible says this. If you're created in the image of God, you are responsible as a sentient moral agent to live according to the principles that God has called human beings to. So when we're thinking about any of these domains, whether it's finances, whether it's time, whether it's talents, whether it's territory, no matter what it is, there is a, the onus is on you and on me as individuals to say, how am I faring in this? Am I doing what God calls me to do? Seen in this light, giving humans dominion of nature spells out respons- responsibility as much as our rights. It certainly gives us no license to exploit God's world and its resources for our own selfish ends. And then the verse continues in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says, And let them have dominion. So he's created in the image of God, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth. That's quite an important phrase. All the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. It's almost as if Moses puts this in so many times so that you would get it. Not once you're created in the image of God, but he keeps on repeating it. You're created in the image of God. You're created in the image of God. You're created in the image of God. Male and female, both created in the image of God. And God blessed them. Now look at the blessing that he gives them. He creates them in the image of God. He gives them dominion, and then he blesses them. This is the first covenantal verse in Scripture where God blesses us. That's a covenantal language. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish over the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves over the earth. The blessing that we receive from God, the first blessing we receive as human beings is to fill the earth and to subdue it and to have dominion over that. So, when we look at the the days of creation, there's these parallels and, and structures that we see in Genesis. And these structures for a Hebrew mind meant something as well. So, it's not just the individual verses that mean something, but the structure that the Hebrew was writing in. So, Moses constructs the story to, if you zoom out, you'll see a structure within the text. This is one of them. You'll see that in day one, day two, and day three, God creates or he forms day and night, sea and sky, land and vegetation. And then he fills it the sun and the moon and the stars, the fish and the birds, and the land creatures. But there's also a, a vertical um, parallel where God moves from, where it's without form and void and darkness, and He finishes and rests. He, he rests in it. He shabbats in it. And so we see this beautiful um, uh, picture where God exactly knows what He's up to. God knows what He is doing. He has this rhythm to it. And the only thing that breaks the rhythm of creation week is what? The Sabbath. The seventh day is just like any other day, 24 hours, but yet it is not like any other day. It has a different rhythm to it. There's something different to the Sabbath day. Not tangibly, but there's something different, something holy. It's set apart, right? And and, and in that day, God celebrates that He's moved from disorder to order, from chaos to cosmos. He has moved to this point. But then there's this another structure. It's the same structure, but another uh, uh, layer to the structure, is that God forms the domains in the first three days, and then he puts the rulers in the next three days. Follow this. Day one, he creates the day and night, and then in verse, uh, chapter one, verse one to five, he says that the sun is to rule the day, and the moon is to govern the night. So God gives a domain, day and night, and then he gives a ruler to that, the sun, moon, and stars. Then he says that he creates the water above and the water below, right? So sky and the sky and the seas. And then he, he gives the birds to fill the heavens and the fish to fill the oceans. And God said to them as well, he blesses them and said, be fruitful and multiply. That's a blessing that God makes with them. It's a covenantal thing that God's makes with them as well, right? And then God makes land and vegetation. Now, if you've ever read Genesis chapter 1, you'll realize that the, the third day and the sixth day are longer than the other days. There's almost two creation accounts on these days. Because it, it links to this next phrase, verse 6b, where it says man and woman were to rule, the land animals, the fish, the birds, all of the earth, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it, every living thing that moves upon the earth. And then on the Sabbath day, God is to rule, humanity, land animals, fish, birds. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and God rested. God blessed and sanctified the Sabbath day. If you go through the story in Genesis 1, you start in verse 1, you'll realize that the day, the story of the first day doesn't end in chapter 2. Like when chapter 2 starts, it's not the next story. It actually only starts in chapter 2 verse 4 because it it tells the seventh day creation story. And then there's a a little passage that links the two stories that says these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. That phrase, the generations of the heavens and the earth, is something what they call a Toledoth. A Toledoth is a a genealogy or generation story. There's 10 in the whole book of Genesis. The whole book of Genesis is is about Abraham and the promise that God makes to him for land and descendants. Land and descendants is something that God already promised in Genesis chapter 1. But if you check what's interesting about that, is that the book of Genesis has two major compartments. What we call primeval history, Genesis 1 to 11, which is all of humanity. And then it shifts to what we call patriarchal history, from Genesis chapter 12 to 50, which is basically Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their 12 sons, and how they end up in Egypt. If you look at the the word Toledoth, genealogy, or generation, you will see that there's five before Abraham, and there's five after Abraham, which means is, in Moses' mind, as he's penning the story, he's thinking about humanity, how they sinned, and how God is going to save them through Abraham. But he sets it up to say the first genealogy list starts off where God creates the heavens and the earth. And so the story starts off that God is the sovereign over everything. But then he gives that right and, and responsibility to you and to me as human beings, who are created in His image. That is something that is massive, which means that if somebody litters, if somebody is is destroying God's environment, cruelly dealing with animals, then we are responsible. You are responsible because you are created in God's image, and you have been given domain Dominion over this earth, to care for it, and to subdue it, and to preserve it. It's not somebody else's business. It's your business. It's my business. Right? Now, we are responsible workers in this. And I, this is the, 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 the next one that I'll focus on. Responsible workers. And there's three things that I want to speak about, and then we can call it a day. The royal priesthood, provision and preservation, and Privilege. Right, So now we know we are created in the image of God. And this image of God that's given to us, one of the things is dominion. So what does it mean? Right? We should be responsible workers if we are to take out this, this work of managing what God has given to us. So royal priesthood, provision and preservation, and privilege. So royal priesthood. I want to run through seven points of how Eden was the first priesthood, or the first tabernacle, first temple, and how Adam and Eve were the first priests and kings. Right, so seven very quick points. One, the term used for, uh, for heavenly light in Genesis chapter one, Maor, created on the fourth day, is unusual. It's not generally the word that they would use for that in the Hebrew. Elsewhere in the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, it is used for the lights in the sanctuary. So in Moses, the same guy that wrote Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, when he was explaining the sanctuary, he used a specific word about the lights that should be in the sanctuary, and he used that same word in Genesis chapter 1, alluding to something very specific there. Point number two, the word often translated seasons, very closely connected to that one, moed, is more accurately rendered as religious festivals. So when you go back to those books, genesis uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, that speaks about the sanctuary, and they speak about religious festivals, that's the word that they used. When Moses was penning the story, he was creating a story to us, a reality to us about what Eden was really. The garden planted by God is in the east, and was entered from the east, Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. Therefore, giving it the same orientation as the Old Testament sanctuary and the restored temple seen in Ezekiel. So, not only the temple in the Old Testament, but the temple that will become, the temple that we're all looking forward to. Humans were placed in the garden to work and to care for it. These are the same verbs that are used in comb- combination elsewhere to describe the duties of the priests in the sanctuary. So, the work given to them is the same work that was given to the priests. Number five, one of the rivers that arise in Eden is the Gihon. So if you read in Genesis chapter 2, you'll see that there's four rivers. Elsewhere in the Bible, this is, um, um, elsewhere in the Bible, this is unknown as a river. You go all the place, you won't find that river again. You see the t- Tigris and the Euphrates. However, due, um, due south of the temple area in Jerusalem is a spring of water known as the Gihon. And that is the site where Solomon, one of the kings of Israel, had his coronation. The Gion was also the source of Hezekiah, another king of of Israel, where his famous aqueduct that provided the water to Jerusalem. Furthermore, just as the rivers flowed out of Eden and watered the whole earth, so in prophetic vision, the waters flowed from the temple and brought fertility to to desert places, nourishing miraculous trees. Number six, in Genesis chapter 3, God placed the cherubim at the entrance of the garden. The cherubim was prominent in the design of the Israelite sanctuary. Right? If you go through the sanctuary, you'll see that they're quite important, especially in the most holy place. The most holy place is where God's Shekinah glory dwelt. It's where he was. It's where his presence was. Solomon's temple, and the Israelite sanctuary, Solomon's temple, and Ezekiel's vision, those are the three major ones that speak about the main places of the sanctuary. They have a vision of God's glory in the restored temple. The cherubim are mentioned almost 100 times in the Old Testament, and Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, is only one of two references that do not explicitly connect them to the sanctuary. Do you want to take a guess what's the other one that speaks about a sanctuary? Ezekiel chapter 28. What is Ezekiel chapter 28 about? Ezekiel chapter 28 is where they speak about, in poetic imagery, the king of Tyre, And he is addressed as having been in Eden, the garden of God. Now, if you read that and you understand that passage, you know that it's speaking about Lucifer. You know that it's speaking about how he went to the garden and how he did what he did and the reasons why he did that. Reason number seven, rest is the principal function of a temple. And a temple is always where deity finds rest. And we saw God rested not merely from creation, but in creation, specifically in the garden with his royal priests created in his image. So when we think of God and don't think of just a beautiful garden where they were sitting back on a, on a hammock and eating mangoes, they were, they were created. God created that as his temple with his royal priests, as people created in his image to do his bidding, his work. He gives them work to do as his representatives, as his ambassadors for, their, for his kingdom. And God calls us back to that reality. So let's move on to the next one, provisions and preservation. There's three words that I want to speak about. It says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. The word for subdue is a very harsh word in the original language. It's a very hard word. It means to make subordinate, subservient, to violate. In some contexts, it means to rape. It's a very strong word. It means to put your foot on somebody's throat, to, to violate them. It's a very strong word. But then it's balanced out with, uh, with the two words that will come in Genesis chapter 2. John Oswald speaking about this word in subdue, he says, Subdue in Genesis 1 verse 28 implies that creation will not do man's bidding gladly or easily and that man must now bring creation into submission by main strength. It is not to rule man. However, there's this twistedness in humanity which causes us to perform such a task with fierce and destructive delight. Try as we might, we cannot subdue this. And we see that this is, this, this is what humanity wants to do, constantly want to subdue creation. But then there's this balance that we find in Genesis chapter two, verse 15, to work it and to keep it. Now, I wanna just pause here for a minute and remind you that Genesis chapter one is focused on power, sovereignty, strength. Genesis chapter two is focused on personal, coming close, intimate. so the word to work it means to work, to serve or to protect very intimate, very looking for, looking out for, the, for, for, for whatever you want to work or serve or protect right It means to and keep it means to watch or to preserve to God, to put in a hedge with thorns around it. so get the picture in your mind that at one point God is saying Man, you need to subdue the earth. You have dominion over this earth. Do something with this earth. You need to work it. It's going to take some effort. It's going to take some work. And you need, to put in your back, you need to put your back into this. But then in Genesis chapter 2, God says that you must preserve it and serve it. Almost put a hedge around it. Can you see how God is balancing out his command that we should not be uh, uh, individuals that say that we can't touch the earth and the, ter- the earth is holy? No, no, no. The earth isn't holy. We are supposed to work and use the earth but we're not supposed to abuse the earth. The Seventh-day Adventist International Commentary, this is one of our newest interna- uh, um, commentaries, says this, the Hebrew word shamar, which means to keep, implies the idea of responsibility. This is the very word Cain uses to refer to his responsibility as a brother. I just want to pause here. In Genesis chapter one, when God creates Adam, the word Adam is the word for humanity. When it speaks about man, the word is is, and when it speaks about woman, it's isah. But when it speaks about humanity, it's adam. When God goes in Genesis chapter 2, and he bows down, and he forms Adam from the dust of the ground, the Hebrew says that God took adam from adamah. We are closely connected to the earth. When you die, where do you go back to? Is it not back to the earth? And so we have this kinship to the earth, and God play, Moses plays on that with that idea to say that we should serve it and preserve it. We should keep it. We should look after it. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. And who is my brother? Well, the earth, the animals. They are our brother, but we are standing over them as created in the image of God. Now, the, the modern science would say that you're just an animal. We say, no, no, no. We have close connection to this earth and to creation, but we are not merely animals. We are created in the image of God. Monkeys and baboons and donkeys and giraffes and all of them, no, 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 they were not created in the image of God. We, we are created in the image of God. And the word keep is also implied in the idea of preserving and of being faithful to past revelations, keeping the law And to protecting it. Humans have the responsibility to keep the earth in the state it has been given to them. To protect it, which already points to the threat of an enemy and the underlying cosmic conflict. He's saying, he's commenting, uh, Jocker commenting um, in this commentary says that when God gave them this, he was saying, I've given you something beautiful. You need to look after it and, and develop it. The same with us. We have been given something. Now, we know that sin has come and marred and tainted this, but we should not be agents of sin perpetuating this evil and perpetuating darkness and perpetuating abuse. We are to fight against it. So privilege. We have a privilege. Firstly, that creation does not belong to us. That's one of the main points that we should know is that we have been privileged to be here, but it doesn't belong to us. We are not the owners. Psalm says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Who's the owner of this world? Who's the owner of the animals? Who's the owner of of, of the mountains? Who's the owner of all of these things? It is the Lord. The Lord. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. That's the first thing that we need to realize when we come to to this discussion is that we are but merely managers, stewards, people that are a part of creation, that we do not stand above creation. Number two is that creation has been entrusted to us. That's a deep sense of privilege, that God saw you fit enough to say, I want to give this to you. I think that you can do this. He sees great, great worth in you to give you that responsibility. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Think about the story of Scripture. We start off in Genesis. We've been all the time just in Genesis, 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 right? So there's so much more of the story to come. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, you know, all the way to Matthew, right? And then Jesus comes, and then Jesus dies, and then the Church comes, right? There's thousands of years that go on, and then Peter comes up and says, "Guys, I just want to let you know, nothing has changed. You are still a royal priesthood. The stuff that Jesus said, the stuff that God said to Adam and Eve, still applies." You want to know about creation care? Go back to the original story, because that, what God gave them, still applies. Here's the profound thing. Adam and Eve were created as royal priests to serve God, and they messed it up. They believed the deception of the devil. They fell. They, they, dis, they disbelieved God's promises. They fell. Who made himself responsible to, come to, to resolve this? God did. Jesus comes, and he comes as the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate king. That's what the word Christ means. Genesis, uh, Matthew chapter one, which incidentally is very closely linked to Genesis, it says this is the genealogy, the Toledoth of Jesus the Christ. Jesus meaning he will save or God will save, and Christ meaning the anointed one, the Mashiach. In the Old Testament, there were three offices that were anointed, the prophet, the priest, and the king. Jesus comes as the ultimate prophet, not only bringing the word of God, but being the word of God. Jesus comes as the high priest, not only bringing the sacrifice, but being the sacrifice. Jesus comes as the king, not only the king of Israel, but the king of the universe. He comes back where we have messed up. He steps into our shoes. He buys back what he needs to buy back. He restores what he needs to restore. And then he says, I know you've messed up, but by my grace, I'm going to give you back the dominion that that has been stolen from you. That's the gospel story. He comes back and he says, there you go. I'm calling you again, even though you've messed up, I'm calling you again to be prophets and priests and kings. Is that not a beautiful privilege? How well are we doing about that? How well are we caring for what God cares about? How well are we saying, well, we we need to look after this earth. We need to look after what has been given to us as our domain to rule. And then we have a sign. This, this is for all Christians. But there is a sign that is specifically very close to us, the Seventh-day Adventist. Therefore the people of Israel, Exodus number 31. Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. A covenant of what? A covenant that He is our God and we are His people. You go through the book You go through the whole Bible talking about the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath? A Sabbath is a continual sign of of realities all rooted in creation. right? Genesis chapter 1. Remember the story of Genesis chapter 1? God moving from chaos to cosmos, from disorder to order. That is how he moves material things from disorder to order. The rest of the story, how he goes from spiritual disorder to order. The the, redemption story is deeply linked to the creation story. If you go to Exodus where God gives the Ten Commandments to them the first time, and He tells them that they should keep the Sabbath day. He reminds them of the Sabbath day. They've been in exile for 400 years. They've been slaves for 400 years. And God gives them His Magna Carta. He gives them this this, uh, kingdom values. And He says, you will keep the Sabbath day. And you know what? On the Sabbath day, everybody is equal, and you should rest on the Sabbath day. Not only you, but who? The donkey or the animals. He says all of creation should rest. And then he says, this is the reason you keep the Sabbath day, because I am the Lord your God who made the seventh day. I created everything. Now if you go just a few few books on to Deuteronomy chapter 5, where God gives the commandments again. Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. God comes there and he gives them the law again, reiterates it to the second generation of Israelites. He comes to them and he says to them, You must keep the Sabbath day, observe the Sabbath day, and go through all of the same stuff. And then at the end, he doesn't say, remember me, I'm the God that created you. No, no, no. He says, I am the God that redeemed you. And then now you fast forward to the New Testament, you go to Hebrews. We just studied this the other day. We're busy with Hebrews in our Sabbath school lesson. In Hebrews, he says, Hebrews chapter four, he uses four kind of, or three kind of levels of the Sabbath. He says there's the archetypal Sabbath, which is the seventh day. He says, but the Israelites were wandering through the desert, wanting to go to the, to the rest, the, the promised land. He says, but there's another rest that is coming, heaven. And he says, these are all interlinked, that our Sabbath day is to remind us where we came from, that we are sons and daughters of the creator, that we are not only sons and daughters of the creator, but we are redeemed children of God, and that we know where we are going to, a new heavens and a new earth, recreation. And we now have a part to be a part of that motion, be a part of that process, that one day when Jesus comes, be like, that's my boy, that's my girl. I know what they're about. They're about me and my business. And my business is looking after my creation. My business is to restore all things. And they know what it's about because they've been busy with it all the days of their lives. Creation core, a creation care is not something that is out there somewhere for some political party to worry about. For us that are Seventh-day Adventists that know that God is the creator, we cannot turn our blind eye. We cannot turn it back and say, well, this is not my fight to fight. It is your fight to fight. It is my fight to fight. It is all of our responsibility because God has come and he says, I have created you in my image. I have called you to have dominion over this earth. I have called you to serve and preserve this earth and the animals and everything there. What are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? When we look at all the stuff that is wrecking our world, it's for profit. And I'll admit, I've been a part of that. I've been a part of that system where I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to rather buy the cheaper T-shirt because I don't want to waste money on an expensive T-shirt. Or I'm going to rather buy this kind of meat or this kind of fish or I'm going all of these things that we do because it's more comfortable for us or because we'd rather want to be ignorant about stuff. But we cannot do that anymore. God calls us to say he has called us to be good stewards of his creation. This is uncomfortable for us, isn't it? Like this is, this is not something that we want to hear on a Sabbath morning. We'd rather just want to hear Jesus loves you. Go back home and enjoy your Sabbath lunch. But God calls us to be responsible agents in this world, to be lights in a dark world, to be the image of God. So ask yourself this question. Are you caring for your territory the way that God would want you to care? Are you caring for your territory the way that God would care for his territory? Because God wants to care for his territory through you. Now, I thought about putting in some slides about what to do next. Um, let me read this quote. Henry Bloscher says this. The Sabbath protects humankind from total absorption by the task of subduing the earth. It anticipates the distortion which makes work the, the, work, uh, makes work the sum and purpose of human life. And it informs mankind that he will not fulfill his humanity in his relation to the world which he or they raise their eyes above in the blessed holy hour of communion with their creator. The essence of mankind is not work. He says that's what the Sabbath is. The Sabbath recalibrates us weekly because we get sucked into this thing all the time. We get sucked into this so much. And so the Sabbath recalibrates us weekly about what is our responsibility and our rights and our privileges. And so I thought, man, what, 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 what kind of practical steps will I put out there be like, hey, this is what we need to do. This is what you need to, and, and I thought, nah, I'm not going to do it. Because we live in a world where there is abundance of evidence. There's abundance of documentaries and books and stuff that you can read, and, and I don't want to tell you what you need to do. I want you to go home and pray and say, Lord, show me what I need to do. Show me where I need to uh, change my, my diet. We know that the world is being wrecked just by eating meat. We know that most of the plastics in our ocean is not because of straws, it's because of overfishing. We, we know that there are places that abuse animals. What are we doing about it? We know that certain things that we buy is contributing to the problem. Certain things that we consume are contributing to the problem. And some of us say, yeah, I kind of know, but I, I'd rather not check. God is calling us to be responsible agents. And so I would invite you to take a journey. Go and watch the documentaries. Read the books. Be a responsible, mature Christian that says God is calling me to to be a, a change agent. God is calling me to do something. That means I need to educate myself. That's the key thing. Let me educate myself. Let me not just take what one person is saying, but let me educate myself on how I should be a better steward of this world. Because God has saw me as his child and said, I think that they can do it. He he sees such worth in you that he gives you the privilege to do that. And the more we do it, I think the closer we'll come to Jesus. Because the more we live like him, the closer we come to the heart of who he is. The sons and daughters of of the father will do what the father does. We'll be about the father's business. It's as easy as that. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we come to you and we say thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. Lord, thank you for such a beautiful Sabbath where we can see people coming to your church and dedicating their lives to you, Lord. It is a high Sabbath indeed. And Lord, as we go through Scripture, thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you that you you see such great worth in us, Lord, and that you make yourself responsible, Lord, to, to lead us back to recreation. That we have messed stuff up, but you give it back to us and say, I want you to be my priests again. I want you to be my kings and queens again. And we say, thank you, Lord. And we know we cannot do it by ourselves. We need your Holy Spirit to lead us. We need the power of Jesus behind us and in us. And so that's what we pray for. We pray, Lord, that your Spirit will be with us, that, your, that Jesus would lead and guide us. But I also pray, Lord, that we would be convicted of where we have been wrong that we would know that things need to change. What needs to change? There's so many, I don't even know where to start. But let's start somewhere by just educating ourselves and and, and show us where, where we can do even smallest of things, Lord. That we will be known as people that know about the Creator, believe in the Creator, pronounce the Creator that He is the King and live it in our lives by the way that we look after creation. Thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.